You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in Acts 23 this morning. Uh, those black hardcover Bibles there, uh, page 932 uh, is where you'll find today's text. And as you'll hear in a moment, uh, in some ways, this is a, a transitional text in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul has just gone through, we looked at last week, a trial before the crowd in Jerusalem, and then a second trial before the, the Jewish high council. He has two trials down, three more trials to go before the end of, of the book of Acts. But I would really encourage you this morning as we hear this kind of transition from the end of Paul's second trial to the beginning of his third to not see this text merely as a transition. Uh, In fact, you can think of it this way. We should only call Acts 23 a transition in the way that Bilbo Baggins calls his story there and back again. It's like, that's true, it's a great title for it, but a little bit more happens than just going out and coming back somewhere. A little more happens in this text than just a a transition from one trial to another. In fact, uh, Acts 23 gives us some incredible glimpses of God's protection and of God's providence. Through some surprising twists, we once again get to see how the book of Acts is not primarily about the work of the apostles, the work of the early church, but is about the work of God himself and what God is accomplishing in the world. Not about the plans or not about the plots of human beings, but about God's own purposes. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into to Acts 23. Our Lord and our God, in these moments now as we prepare to hear your word, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, soften our hearts, that we may delight in your presence, sharpen our minds, that we may discern your truth, shape our wills, that we may desire your ways. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our God. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Acts chapter 23, beginning in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had, all, till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you, would ha- that, you would ha- that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed Paul, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. 
So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have, what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's look this morning together more closely at three things that Paul experiences here in Acts 23. And as we do that, uh, we'll also consider how you and I experience some of the same things in our lives. So the three things are these, imminent danger, divine intervention, and inscrutable design. Imminent danger, divine intervention, inscrutable design. So first, imminent danger. We've already seen Paul narrowly escape death in Jerusalem a couple times now, these last couple chapters that we've been in in the book of Acts. But here, we learn just how much danger he really is in. A certain subset of the Jewish people are really committed to seeing Paul's life come to an end very soon. By, by embracing the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, into the family of God, Paul has made himself a threat. And then by saying that as a Christian, he's still a faithful Jew, they believe Paul is committing blasphemy. So this plot forms. And as we just read a moment ago, 40 zealous Jews bind themselves with an oath that would have sounded something like, may God do terrible things to us if we eat or drink anything before Paul is dead. They then conspire with the chief priests and the elders. Uh, these would have been members of the Sadducee party, uh, which we saw last week in the previous chapter. Uh, Sadducees on the Jewish high council, they would have been the group of Jews that were not open and receptive to Paul's message. They denied the supernatural. They said there was no such thing as the resurrection. There is no such thing as spirits or angels. So the plan is for this high council to now summon Paul a second time. He was already there once, now a second time. But on the short walk through what were very narrow Jerusalem streets, on the way from the, the Roman military fortress where Paul was being kept to the chambers of the Jewish high council where the second meeting would supposedly take place, there were going to be plenty of opportunities for Paul to either be abducted or killed on the spot. Think for just a moment about, about how committed this group of 40 Jewish men really is. Paul is being guarded and escorted, not by like ordinary people, but by highly trained Roman soldiers. So in the process of, of them getting to Paul, it's not if some of them are going to die, it's how many. 
And then even if they are successful, even if they are able to get to Paul and kill Paul, all of them are going to die for having attacked a Roman group of soldiers and one of the people in their, in their care. But they're willing to, to make that trade, a 40 to 1 trade, their lives for, for Paul's. That's the imminent danger that Paul finds himself in in Acts 23. Here's the thing, though. By this point in his life, Paul is an imminent danger veteran. This is not, even in the book of Acts, the first plot against his life. We actually have already read in the book of Acts three other plots against Paul, at least. First one comes in Acts chapter 9. After Paul uh, experience, has his conversion on the road to Damascus, the Jewish people there in Damascus conspire to, to kill him, plot to kill him. And he's famously lowered in a basket down the, the wall of Damascus. Later, also in Acts chapter 9, Paul returns to Jerusalem and the Hellenists, the, the Greek-speaking Jews of Jerusalem, they make a plot against his life. But he's able to get out of the city before they find him. And then third, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is then in Greece, or the province of Achaia, and there's another plot by the Jewish people there, but Paul departs and goes to another, another city before they're able to catch up with him. So this is really just another day for Paul. It's another day for him. We're amazed. We look, we're like, wow, look at the danger that Paul is in. And Paul's like, I, I just call that Tuesday. This is just another day, another week in my life. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, this letter that he writes to the church in Corinth, he actually wrote that a couple years before these events of Acts 23. Paul detailed what he had been experiencing as he was traveling around the Mediterranean world on his missionary journeys. And he writes this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. In case you weren't counting along, that's eight dangers that Paul writes of, plus some other things, just in that one text. So Paul, danger is not Paul's middle name. It's his first, middle, and last name. He's always in danger. Now here's what I'd invite you to see this morning. That you, Christian, are also in imminent danger. That you are also in imminent danger. Not in the same way Paul was. Very few, if any of us, have ever experienced that kind of physical danger. Beatings, imprisonment, death threats. But to be a Christian, to be a son or daughter of God, is to face imminent spiritual danger. Perpetual attacks from the accuser and the enemy of your soul, who is Satan. The book of Revelation metaphorically depicts Satan as a dragon. Knowing that he has been defeated by the anointed one, by Jesus, the dragon becomes furious and he rages against the church, against those, as John, who wrote the book of Revelation, as he puts it, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, if you are someone who seeks to, to walk in God's way, if you are someone who clings to faith in Jesus, Satan rages against you, against you. He's a, he's a defeated foe. He knows he's lost the war. But like many defeated foes throughout the history of the world, that makes him all the more dangerous. 
Because he's lost, he has nothing to lose. And so he will throw everything he can at you. He will do everything in his power to try to draw you away from Jesus. This is why the Apostle Peter, in his letter, calls Christians to be constantly alert. He actually, Peter uses a different animal metaphor. In 1 Peter 5, he writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like what? Like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I don't say any of this this morning as a, a scare tactic. I don't say any of this this morning to try and make you paranoid. I say this this morning because according to the word of God, this is a spiritual reality. This is a spiritual reality. If you hold to the testimony of Jesus, Satan seeks to destroy and devour you. And we come from a lot of different backgrounds this morning. Some of us are here maybe just exploring Christianity. Some of us have maybe grown up in the church and been in the church for many years. Most of us, at least from my best guess, most of us don't come from a Christian tradition that emphasizes this. And by this, I mean the, the reality of spiritual forces of evil and the danger that we find ourselves in constantly. And to clarify this morning, I'm not asking you to start seeing a demon, an evil spirit behind every rock, behind every negative circumstance that plays out in your life. But I am saying we need to wake up to this reality. We need to wake up to this reality. Where are you in imminent danger? And where are you susceptible to that danger? Which of Satan's lies are you prone to believe? Might actually sound like they're true when you hear them. Which of Satan's temptations are still appealing to you? You, you maybe even know better. You've maybe been down that road a thousand times in your life already and you know it doesn't satisfy, but the temptation is still appealing. Which of his accusations, because he is the accuser, which of his accusations are particularly stinging and condemning? We need to wake up. We need to be watchful. The, the lies, the temptations, the accusations, that danger is far more imminent than you and I often realize. And as we occupy ourselves with work and school and home life and leisure and comfort, we can become blind to that. We can be lulled to sleep. So as we read Acts 23, as we dive into this chapter, let the imminent physical danger that Paul experiences in his life remind you of the imminent spiritual danger that you and I face in our own. Imminent danger is not the only thing, thankfully, though, that we see in Acts 23. So second, let's talk about divine intervention. Divine intervention. This plot against Paul's life fails. Or as we titled the sermon, the plot, the plot is brought to naught. And we see in this text multiple evidences of God's intervention. God intervenes into these circumstances in a way that brings about Paul's deliverance. So let's just step through a few of them. First, Paul's nephew. It's actually the only place in the whole Bible that we meet a member of Paul's family. He apparently has a sister, and her son is somehow in place to learn about this plot before it happens. Uh, scholars speculate there's a few different ways that that could have maybe happened. Nobody knows for sure, but providentially, he gets to hear about this plot before it happens. And then when he does, he immediately goes and tells Uncle Paul. And that's a second evidence of God's divine intervention, that his nephew is even able to visit Paul. Because Paul's imprisoned, right? 
Paul's imprisoned. And remember, we're talking about the Roman Empire here. Remember how the Roman Empire treated Jesus 30 years or so before this moment. The Roman Empire was not earning high marks from Amnesty International. They weren't known for their like humane treatment of prisoners and like comfort for their, for their prisoners. This is a brutal empire. But the tribune, having learned that Paul is a Roman citizen, now is going to great lengths to take good care of him and make sure he has some of those rights that he came very close to taking away from him when he had him laid out to be flogged for you know, examination just a couple days before. Third evidence, Paul's nephew is able then to relay this information to the tribune. He actually gets an audience with the top military leader in Jerusalem. That's not a given. Fourth, the tribune, who we learn now is named Claudius Lysias, believes him. He takes the word of this young man and says, okay, well, you heard it, so I guess that's true. Fifth, Claudius immediately mobilizes a massive number of Roman soldiers I don't know if you caught the numbers as we kind of read through this text. 200 foot soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. That's 470 soldiers in all. Now, mind you, the the entire Roman force in the city of Jerusalem at this time, 1,000 people, 1,000 soldiers. So nearly half of them, Claudius mobilizes nearly half of them to escort one prisoner about 60 miles. Again, some of this is motivated by Claudius' fear. He, he came way too close to stripping a Roman citizen of his rights. So now becoming aware of this plot against that citizen's life, Claudius can't afford to let Paul die in his custody. So he's like, all right, I heard about this. I'm going to take it seriously. Let's get the soldiers mobilized. Let's get him out of here right now. Sixth evidence, Claudius writes this letter to Felix. Uh, Felix is the governor of the Roman province. So so, uh, Claudius, in essence, is escalating this up the chain of command another level. And if you've ever recounted a story of something you've done in your life and, you know, shall we say, spruced up the facts a little bit to make yourself look better, then you and Claudius have something in common. He's, He's largely honest about the facts. He doesn't just outright lie, but there's definitely some doctoring in this letter. According to the letter, he learned Paul was a Roman citizen pretty early when in reality it took him a while to figure that out. And noticeably absent is that whole episode where he like almost flogged Paul. He just leaves that out, makes himself look good. And then seventh, and the last evidence we'll look at today, Felix's reception of Paul. He, he agrees to take the case. And he then puts Paul up in a palace, the praetorium, built by Herod the Great. Uh, That's now become part of the the Roman headquarters in the Roman province there. So again, nice accommodations for someone who is a detainee of the Roman Empire. But as Claudius himself noted in the letter, Paul is a Roman citizen. He's done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So though he is detained, he's not free to move about on his own, he is going to be well taken care of. All of that to say, let's recognize here in this text God's divine intervention in Paul's life. There's no reason that Paul should even still be alive by this point in the book of Acts. And if we were beginning the book of Acts and remembering, you know, Jesus starts by telling his disciples they're going to go out into the world. Jesus had just died and risen from the dead. We remember how the Roman Empire treated him. Good money, at the beginning of the book of Acts, the good money was on Paul being persecuted by the Roman Empire, not protected by them. 
But God has providentially orchestrated these circumstances to, to deliver Paul from danger. Now, that is not how it always goes, is it? God's providence does not always mean deliverance. And we've actually seen that already in the book of Acts. Stephen, one of the seven servants, early deacons, was not delivered from death. James, the brother of John, one of the twelve, was not delivered from death. And so deliverance, or lack thereof, is not an indicator of a person's faithfulness. It's not like, well, Stephen really wasn't doing a good job and Paul was, so Paul gets to live and Stephen didn't. It's simply that at times, God intervenes to bring his deliverance in completely unexpected ways. And if you remember Paul, for his part, he was prepared to die in Jerusalem. Similar to how Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, prepared to die there, Paul went to Jerusalem knowing the danger and in some ways fully expecting to die there. But we find out now this is not Paul's time. We read it together this morning in our liturgy. The author of Proverbs says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that stands. So Paul came ready to die, but God's purposes were different for him. This group of 40 Jews then took an oath to kill Paul, and they soon became a very hungry and a very thirsty group of men. I don't know how long they waited to like break the vow, but I think they broke it at some point. I don't think they waited seven or eight years, however many more years it was till Paul actually was martyred in Rome. They became very hungry and thirsty for at least some period of time. And it was because God's purposes, not their plans, it was what was going to stand. The same thing holds true today. You and I, in our minds, we have many plans. And sometimes, like Paul's, Our plans are noble and good. Our plans are overtly to follow in the way of Jesus and even be willing to be incredibly sacrificial with our lives even to follow him. Sometimes our plans are more like this plot from the 40 Jewish men, misguided, in direct opposition to what God is doing in the world. In either case, whether our plans are for good or our plans are for evil, it's it's the purposes of God that stand. We'll pick up that thought just a little more in a second. But before we move on, let's make sure that we see really clearly here. God's purposes do not guarantee physical deliverance for you and me. They do not guarantee that. God's purposes don't always include his intervention to protect us from suffering or to protect us from harm or to protect us from mistreatment. But God's purposes always do include the consummate divine intervention that God the Father sent God the Son, that that Jesus Christ taking on flesh and dwelling among us, that, that is the divine intervention. And so in the circumstances of our lives, we may or may not be rescued from physical danger as Paul was here, but you can be sure because of Jesus, because of the divine intervention, that you will be delivered from spiritual danger, from spiritual death even, As Paul goes on to write in another one of his letters, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, made us alive. And the imminent spiritual danger that you and I find ourselves in is those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, danger from the dragon, from the lion, Satan, you will be delivered from that. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan's power is nothing compared to the power of the risen Jesus Christ. 
And so those lies that you're particularly prone to believe, there is always a gospel promise. There is always a truth standing ready to combat that lie. And that temptation that remains so appealing to you, there's always a way of escape. No matter how much it feels like it in any given moment, sin is never inevitable. God is always providing a way out. And that accusation that Satan loves to condemn you with, there is mercy and forgiveness. See, because of Jesus' divine intervention, even as we sang together this morning, at the throne of God, before the throne of God, the only thing that remains for you is grace. Grace to help in your time of need. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That condemnation, that accusation from Satan, there's grace for you because of the the divine intervention of Jesus. So in the midst of the imminent danger, avail yourself of this divine intervention. Look for it. Look for it. May God give you eyes to see it because of Jesus Christ. It is there. It's there. So that's imminent danger and divine intervention. Third and finally, inscrutable design. Inscrutable design. The specifics of God's work in the world, of God's design, are inscrutable, mysterious, unknowable, in other words. We do know, because God has revealed it to us, the big picture design. We do know that that God is reconciling right now, reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. That Jesus Christ is making all things new. But how we get from today to that day, and all of the joys and the sorrows that are caught up in that, the triumphs and the tragedies, why some are delivered by divine intervention and why others are not delivered and die, this is beyond our ability to understand. Paul goes on to write, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or as we even heard in our liturgy today, God's thoughts, God's ways are not ours. They are higher than ours. With Paul in this text, we're actually given a a rare glimpse of some of what God is doing, some of that inscrutable design in the midst of these circumstances. Back in verse 11, where we actually started our our reading this morning, Paul receives this really comforting vision from Jesus. Jesus says to him, take courage, Paul. Take courage. Just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you're now about to go do the same thing in Rome. And remember, Paul has been wanting to get to Rome for quite some time now, at least since Acts chapter 19 when he was in Ephesus and and maybe even earlier than that. But how was Paul planning to get to Rome? How was Paul going to get to Rome? Well, almost certainly the same way he got to all the other cities he went to on his three missionary journeys. He'd get on a boat or he'd walk and he'd go to the the cities that he planned to, to visit. Instead, as we'll see even more clearly in the coming weeks, the way Paul actually gets to Rome is via the Roman judicial system. He will get to Rome, all right, but it will be under Roman protection as a detainee of the Roman Empire. And because of that, because of that, rather than, as was his custom, rather than starting out in the synagogue, getting kicked out, finding another place that he can talk publicly about Jesus, and then slowly seeing people start to come to faith in Jesus— Paul is instead about to be given an audience with some of the most influential people in the most influential empire in the known world. And the gospel will break into the upper echelons of society and begin its transforming work from there. See, in God's design, 
This is what's happening in the book of Acts. This is what's happening in Acts 23. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going out to all the world. It's going out. Many among the the Jewish people, God's chosen people from generations earlier, they are rejecting this new act of God's redemption. But their rejection means inclusion for the non-Jewish people, for the Gentiles. And so God is now bringing the gospel, God is bringing Paul himself to the absolute center of that Gentile world in Rome. There's still hope for the Jewish people. There's still hope that they will one day open their eyes and look and see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But in the meantime, this is a day of salvation for all the peoples of the earth. All of those people who were once far off from God are being brought near through the work of Jesus. So how crazy is this? As this plot from these 40 Jewish men fails, it actually accelerates the advance of the gospel to the Gentiles. It actually pours fuel on the fire of exactly what they don't want to happen. Not only is their plot plot brought to nothing, it actually has the complete opposite effect. And if it were possible for you and I to do the, the genealogical, the historical work, some of us in this room, Gentiles that we are, most of us don't come from a, from a Jewish family, a Jewish line. Most of us, some of us, could probably trace our spiritual lineage to this. In other words, some of you are Christians today because a couple millennia ago, 40 fanatical Jewish men tried to kill Paul and failed in the providence of God. And what was at that point an internal religious dispute among different Jewish groups all of a sudden spilled out into the central places of power in the Roman Empire? Writing to Christians in Rome, Paul actually riffs on this idea for actually a couple whole chapters of that, of that letter. How does he bring that to a close? He brings it to a close with a, a doxology, a hymn, a short hymn of praise about the inscrutable design of God that no one could have thought this or planned that this is the way God was going to work in the world. He says in Romans chapter 11, Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We don't know how all the pieces fit together. But in these final chapters of the book of Acts, the curtain gets pulled back just enough so that we can see they do. They do fit together. We don't know why God allows the Jewish council to put Stephen to death some years earlier, but allows Paul to live by foiling their plot. We don't know why Paul is the chosen instrument instead of Peter or James or Stephen or anyone else. And likewise, we very rarely get answers to the why questions in our own lives. Why does one person recover and another person succumb? Why is one person recognized and honored and another person left in obscurity or just completely dragged through the mud? At the end of the matter is the inscrutable design of God. And as we search out as much as we possibly can, as we seek to understand as much as God is pleased to reveal, at times, even doing all of those things, the only conclusion that is left for us is that his ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts, that his ways are higher. And because he's God and I'm not, his purposes will stand. Church, what I hope you see in that this morning 
is that though his design is inscrutable, though we just can't understand so much of it or see how the pieces are going to fit together, God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. As Corey Ten Boom once put it, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. God is, and we get to see that as we look back on the book of Acts 2,000 years ago, God is working all things together for good. And the reason that we can trust him in that is because he is the one who provided the consummate divine intervention, that Jesus Christ came into the world to rescue us from Satan, to rescue us from sin, to rescue us from death itself. So as you wake up to the imminent danger, as you avail yourself of his divine intervention, may you learn to rest and rejoice in God's inscrutable design. And in your life, whether your, your plans succeed or whether your plots fail, may you recognize that over it all reigns our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who has intervened for the life and the salvation of the world. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. We praise you even more specifically for the divine intervention of Jesus Christ. And as we prepare now to come to his table, to recognize that he took on flesh and so that he could offer it up, that he took on human blood so that he could pour it out, that even though we can't see how all of the pieces in your design fit together, Father, we can trust you because you have sent Jesus into the world. Jesus, we can trust you because you have intervened for our life and salvation and the life and salvation of the world. So I pray we'd see that this morning. I pray we'd have a, a deeper appreciation of the worth of your intervention. And even as we prepare to go back out into this world that you love, as we prepare to face the imminent spiritual danger that we are always in as those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, may now in these moments at this table by your spirit's power, may you meet us with grace. May you strengthen us. May we feast again on your finished work, Jesus, so that we will be prepared to see and to avail ourselves of the deliverance that you do afford us, that you offer us. Praise you for it. Praise you for your life offered up for us. I pray, this, pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.